0: Hello and welcome to Boston Heart Diagnostics podcast, Heart Matters. I'm Ann Stone, a medical science liaison with Boston Heart Diagnostics. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Amy Deneen, DNP, who is a adjunct professor at Texas Tech Health Science Center, Lubbock, Texas, a clinical associate professor at Washington State University College of Medicine, assistant professor at the University of Kentucky's College of Dentistry and currently runs the Heart Attack and Stroke Prevention Center in Spokane, Washington. She is one of the nation's leading specialists in preventing heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. She is also a forefront leader in women's cardiovascular health prevention. She co-founded the bale Donine Method with Bradley Bale in 2001, their holistic personalized approach of cardiovascular risk reduction has been effective enough to allow them to attach a guarantee to their clinical practices. The results of their method of demonstrating regression and stabilization of arterial disease have been published in several peer-reviewed journals. Welcome, Dr. Dane. Thank you, Anne. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So. For some time now, we've known that atherosclerosis is an inflammatory disease. And in your book, you use the reference, quote, higher in the artery. Can you take a few <laughs> minutes to tell us how you assess inflammation in your patient? And would you mind speaking specifically to how you use the biomarker lp 2 Sure. Well, let me backtrack just a little bit and, and give you a little history, and then it will lead into the idea of using inflammatory testing with individual patients. So many, many years ago when we started our work um, on prevention, we realized that the first thing we needed to do was um, embrace tools that identify the presence of atherosclerosis. And, and what I like to say is atherosclerosis is much smarter Than the technology that's been historically designed to find it because in the old days and even sadly today we use things that are looking for atherosclerosis and I'm going to use the name plaque to describe atherosclerosis just to make it a little more simple in our conversation but plaque And 99% of all plaque, and this was first proven by Dr. Nissen with Ibis, 99% of all plaque actually lives in the artery wall between the intima and the media layer of the artery. So if our technology that we use looks at the lumen, which is where blood flows, we're going to miss the presence of atherosclerosis. So in the late 1990s or mid to late 1990s, rather, all we had really on a clinical standpoint was coronary artery calcification uh, to look for the presence of calcium in the coronary arteries, hence diagnosing coronary artery disease before someone had an event to prove that it's there. What we know is that atherosclerosis or plaque is a very dynamic process, so the the healing phase of atherosclerotic change is actually um, collagen and calcium, which we actually can pick up with some of those CT images. So, calcium is a late manifestation of atherosclerosis. So, in the year 2000, we started to embrace ultrasound, B-mode ultrasound of the artery wall, and we would use and still do really the carotids as our window peak. So, we started there to look for the presence of plaque And then to identify the safety of that plaque because events occur, in when the plaque is inflammatory and it ruptures through that endothelial wall, that very thin cell lining of protective cells that line um, each artery. So we think like an inside lining of a garden hose. Um, And if the plaque ruptures, the body's autoimmune response to that is to send in clotting factors um, to form a, a healing or a fancy way to say it would be a thrombus, and if that thrombus lands in the brain, we'll call it an ischemic stroke, which is over 90% of the cause of strokes. If it lands in the heart, we'll call it a heart attack. So that was the first phase, and then as we move forward with patients, you know, in the world of prevention, and it's tough because we're trying to treat something that we hope our patient never feels, so it's very difficult clinically to maintain compliance with patients, unless they are able to observe improvement, and it's hard to observe improvement if they didn't even feel it was there in the first place, so therefore, we have these wonderful clinical tools that assess for the stability of that atherosclerosis, and they're called biomarkers, and we we live and breathe clinical laboratory testing and prevention, and there's a series of them, and I know we'll get into them, but sort of a um, a top-tier list of, of biomarkers that we utilize, and the one you mentioned was lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A 2 which I'll go into in a moment. But when we want to know if our treatment is effective, we will measure the inflammatory markers, both of the endothelium and the intima. And if things are stable, that's fantastic. If they're not, and we see some inflammation, we pause and we ask why, and we look for all the root causes, whether it be insulin resistance, sleep fragmentation, sleep apnea, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, lipoprotein A, um, periodontal pathogens, endodontic lesions, I could go on and on, but measuring the inflammatory markers on a very frequent basis, we do them at least four times a year on our patients, allow us to know if our treatment is effective, if the patient is safe, or if we're missing, perhaps, one of the root causes, or um, it gives us an opportunity to counsel more diligently with lifestyle and stress management, et cetera. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the background. Yeah, it kind of helps put it in perspective. So, your your question was about lipoprotein-associated phospholipase A2, otherwise known as LPPLA-2, or the clinical name is PLAQ-2, um, and what that looks at is basically um, activity within the artery wall, or as the cholesterol oxidizes, we're going to see a release of this enzyme, and we can actually measure it, and now we have the ability to measure the activity of that LPPLA-2 enzyme, and the interesting thing about LPPLA-2 Ann, is that it lacks biovariability, as an example, some of the biomarkers, the most, um, the most uh, systemically affected biomarker for inflammation um, that people might relate to would be SED rate. If your SED rate is elevated, you've got inflammation somewhere, um, and so we don't really use SED rate because it has too much biovariability. We cannot say that if it's elevated, it's definitely the vascular system causing it, very different when we look at plaque two. When they've evaluated plaque two, and they've actually done studies and where they've taken young, healthy people, and they've uh, measured it at baseline, and they've also measured some others like hsCRP, which has some variability if you're sick, if you hurt yourself, if you stub your toe, hsCRP could be elevated. So they took this group of healthy individuals, young, healthy, non-atherosclerotic individuals, and they injected them with an endotoxin. Which is hard to believe they got away with this with the IRB, but anyway they did. And then they measured in. They measured in twenty-four hours the hsCRP and the LpPLA2. The interesting thing was. These individuals got deathly ill quickly because of this endotoxin. They had high fevers, they were sick, upper respiratory vomiting, they were ill. And so HSCRP and went up a hundred fold a hundredfold, as you would expect if someone was sick. The LPPLA-2 did not budge, didn't even budge. And the the other interesting thing about LPPLA-2 is we have some cause and effect data associated with it. So it really is a player in the disease phase. So as LPPLA-2 comes down, we can say with certain confidence, that the activity within the intima media of the artery is becoming more um, stable. And so when we've done our data analysis through Texas Tech and, and Johns Hopkins, we've been able to show that we can change atherosclerosis, both looking at the mean IMT, the max mean IMT, the plaque burden, the lipid richness of the plaque, and the LPPLA-2 all come down on a linear progression pattern when we do our job right. So I measure LpPLA2 about every quarter on patients, perhaps even more frequently as I'm trying to manipulate why it might be elevated in the first place. Um, and it, it's a wonderful tool. Great, thank you so much. So would you say there's there's definitely a direct correlation between the presence of soft plaque, which is more more liable to to, to rupture and cause these events, um, and and elevated levels of this LpPLA2 marker? Well, I think on a very simplistic explanation, you could say that, but the word soft plaque, the LPPLA-2 elevation is not synonymous with the soft plaque lesion. LPPLA-2 is really um, looking at oxidation activity within the intima media layer of the artery. So oftentimes, yes, if someone has inflammatory Plaque, we will see the LPPLA2 elevated. However, when LPPLA2 is stabilized and the patient is treated well, over time the stability of plaque is a very dynamic process. So we can't use it as a surrogate to biology assessment. If that helps. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Just um, mm-hmm. switching gears a little bit, Boston Heart Diagnostics recently started offering a urinary albumin creatinine ratio. Can you tell us how you use this marker in your plaque and how an elevated value might change your patient's treatment plan? Sure. So this is a great test, and I'll tell you, it's been around forever. It's just been around in the world of of monitoring kidney health. So microalbumin creatinine urine ratio is a calculation, and it looks at how much albumin is actually being released through the... I, I want to say thousands, I might be overstepping, at least hundreds of miles of little capillaries through the kidneys. And it's a true statement that when microalbumin, creatinine, urine ratio is above 30, when it's about 30, that there's a demonstration that the kidneys are showing signs of distress. So that's how historically it's been utilized. Anything under 30 was considered normal. Anything over 30 was considered abnormal for kidney function. Um, However, the Framingham Offspring Cohort data assessment allowed us to use this very inexpensive tool um, to be more precise for the endothelial wall. the cut point established with the Framingham offspring cohort data, what they did is they took individuals and they were young. Um, I think the mean age was around 55 and they followed them for about six years. If the uh, microalbumin creatinine, urine ratio was above four for men or above seven for women, there was a basically a 2.9 or degree fold in, um, increase of risk of a heart attack or stroke over the next six years. And so what we've done, it was actually a 2.92 increased risk. So we call it about a three-fold increased risk of a cardiovascular event. So our cut points for microalbumin are really less than four for men and less than seven for women. And let's say as we move forward and I'm monitoring a patient, um, if I saw someone, like let's just use ourselves as an example, and if I was following you, you being a female, And I saw your microalbumin at eight, let's say. And maybe I saw your LPPLA2 slightly elevated. Um, I would pause and I would say, gosh, what's going on with you? Are we doing a good enough job with your blood pressure? Is the systolic maintaining a level of less than 120 based on the SPRINT data? Is your total cholesterol to HDL ratio under 3? Is your ApoB appropriate? How's your insulin resistance? How are you sleeping? How's your stress? How's your How, how are you? And it gives us a chance to kind of... Visit with the patient and understand what might be driving that inflammation. One of the mistakes I think commonly made when when a sort of inexperienced clinician looks at these numbers in isolation is the idea of what can I put this patient on or do to make it come down. And while there are treatments that make it come down, what you first need to out is why it's elevated in the first place. It may be blood pressure, it may be cholesterol, but it may be a plethora of other um, root causes as well. So, if we treat the why, we see the inflammation go down, and we see the disease stabilize. It's a pretty simplistic model on a complex disease state. So, if if you detect inflammation via one of the methods um, that you just spoke about, uh, is there a particular diet that you place your patients on, um, are there certain foods that you want them to avoid or that you feel like likely cause inflammation in most everyone? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking it because, you know, we're all trying to figure it out, right? But uh, we really pride ourselves on being as precision-based as possible. So, a key element to the Veil method is applying genetics to practice and so even when we offer lifestyle advice, what we realize is that there is no panacea diet for all of us, Um, there's just not. I mean, some people will benefit from one diet modality and the other and it's very confusing to patients because if a patient was to read a book in isolation, um, they might believe that that would be best for them and as you read that piece of literature, it makes sense. However, we all respond differently to what we put in our mouth. So we appreciate a couple different genes for dietary advice. The first one is called the ApoE gene, and it's found on chromosome 19, and it allows us to understand how our bodies break down common food groups like fats, carbohydrates, proteins things like alcohol advice, are all going to be made based on the ApoE genes. So there's three alleles to that, and There's an ApoE 2, 3, or 4. Of course, with all genes, you're going to get one from your mom and one from your father. And so based on someone's ApoE presentation, I might offer a low-fat diet, a higher fat. And when I say fat, I mean the good fats like the omegas. Um, and things like that. Saturated fats, we know as a whole, are not good for anybody, um, and there's certain things that aren't good for us, too many carbohydrates, too much sugar, soda, all those are blanket recommendations, but to get very precise on how our lipid profile is going to respond and our inflammation, we like to use the ApoE gene. Another one that we've really enjoyed is the opportunity to understand um, someone's haptoglobin status. Haptoglobin is a gene that um, uh, most of the data has to do with um, diabetics, uh, type 2 diabetics, and that's where most of the, di- the, the data rests and where it's been studied the heaviest on um, is type 2 diabetics. And, and if someone carries the haptoglobin 2 genotype and they are a type 2 diabetic, they have an increased cardiovascular risk throughout their lifetime. The interesting thing about haptoglobin 2 individuals, whether they're diabetic or not, is that when they ingest gluten, which is wheat, rye, or barley, it has nothing to do with an allergy, but they produce a chemical called zonulin. Zonulin affects all cellular barriers in our body, so it can affect the gut and make um, symptoms of what you would say a leaky gut, so irritable bowel, um, bloating, um, things like that. From the blood-brain barrier, it can cause a permeability, so they've looked at depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia, um, attention deficit disorders. Um, all this idea of this zonulin not being a friendly element to health, um, whether it be in the joints mimicking something like an arthritis, whether it be in the respiratory tract. um, People might be more vulnerable, as you'll see with children or adults, um, reactive airway diseases like exercise induced asthma or, um, environmentally induced asthma. So we, we guide our advice based on should someone have gluten or not probiotics? Should someone have a lower fat, higher, higher fat Mediterranean? Should they be vegan? Should, you know, all that based on someone's unique individual profile. And then we balance all of that with their root causes because if someone's insulin resistant, we are going to also include mechanisms and in lifestyle advice that would prevent them from going on to type two diabetes. So there's a lot of decisions to be appreciated when we look at, um, you know, someone's genetic predisposition. The, the most popular diet right now is really the what, what would be called the fasting mimicking diet, and and I think that's very exciting literature actually when you look at autophagy and senescence, or the body's ability to clean itself up, if you will. So when you look at some of these fasting uh, programs, which they've done on, on mice and to some degree humans, where they've looked at fatty liver disease or brain health, and they've showed um, through the research that this fasting-mimicking diet Modality creates ketosis based on timing um, rather than um, just the food choices that we might eat so um, and a, a weight loss would be a side effect of all of that but um, so I think diet recommendations are certainly not simple. I do not believe there's a panacea diet for any of us, and based on someone's medical history, family history, personal history, religious beliefs. Um, cultural beliefs and their genetics, ApoE, haptoglobin, insulin-resistant profiles, um, we're going to make an individualized approach. Wow. I think that is a textbook definition of personalized medicine, Dr. I mean, Gainey. <laughs> is, that is amazing. Your patients are very fortunate to have you at the helm. Oh, well, that's kind you. of you. Well, yeah. So, um, any other clinical pearls, um, you know, specifically directed towards um, inflammations for our listeners today? Well, I think just remember what I said earlier, and that is, we're trying to treat something we hope our patient never feels, and so part of the challenge clinically is. I hear it all the time. I hear people say, "Well, how do you ma- how do you get your patient to maintain compliance?" What is a value, and one of the reasons. Truthfully, that Boston, Boston, won from a clinical standpoint, obviously the the scientific rigor for which the labs are obtained is is phenomenal, but also the way they're reported to patients. Um, places it in a platform that patients can really see, they can somewhat feel what's going on, and whether we use a carotid IMT image, which is looked at um, improving long-term compliance. In partnership with a patient, as you sit down and you go over these reports, have the knowledge to articulate the value of what that test means, and if you're seeing inflammation in your patients, whether it be the microalbumin creatinine urine ratio, the LPPLA2, um, the HFCRP, we don't devalue it, the fibrinogen level, um, myeloperoxidases, um, when we look at the inflammatory sort of milieu of someone's arterial wall health, and these numbers are not perfect and I expect perfect, it allows you to pause and start asking questions. So often we find that it's out of our expertise and it might be a dental hygiene issue, it might be an endodontic abscess. it might be a psychosocial factor that you need to really partner with a psychologist to work on talk therapy and stress management. It may be not sleep apnea but sleep fragmentation. Whatever it is that's driving um, the inflammation, don't ignore it. That would be my best pearl. Don't ignore it. The lab values are real, and they have applicability with the patient. Their life depends on it, actually. So that's, I guess, the most important point I want to I want to leave. If you see an elevation of inflammation, and do expect perfect. If it's not perfect, ask yourself what you could do better. So, Dr. Donin, if people are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find more information? Well, thanks for asking. That's our whole goal is education. Um, I feel like the more I learn about this, the more I need to learn, and so we've taken that passion of knowledge, um, attainment, uh, to share it with others. So, twice a year, we have uh CME programs and CE programs that are backed by the American Academy of Family Practice, and we offer dental CE with those as well. And we give them twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall. Um, our next course is in November. And, oh, my gosh, we would love it for anyone who's using inflammatory testing or genetics or um, looking at atherosclerosis to come to the two-day course to really appreciate where to put this information into an architecture of clinical utility. That's what I like to call it. Um, and it's dynamic. It changes all the time. Visit our website at baledoneen.com. That's donee ncom and learn about our online courses. Our, we do monthly scientific update sessions where every month Um, We're going to share with you the data in the world of vascular health that's been published in the last uh, 30 days. So we really push ourselves to stay current and give you the information along the way. Um, Get your office branded so you're a bail-doning practice so when people read our book, Beat the Heart Attack Chain, they know where to find a provider who knows how to... Um, you know, treat them. So we have been working tirelessly behind the scenes and to make this information accessible. Um, and I just thank you for allowing me to to share that. Of course, and thank you so much, Dr. Ning, for your valuable time. And I know our listeners have just learned so much. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much.